This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Mutant City Spies. Eating Your Vegetables. Pelgrane Panel Highlights. And Hollywood Trotsky. It blew up Kickstarter. It slid into Gen Con on a gurney with both guns blazing. And now Feng Shui 2 action movie role-playing is laying down the Kung Fu, the Gun Fu, and the Cybernetic Primate Fu, and rocketing its way to a retail store near you. In Feng Shui 2, you play a ragtag band of heroes. Inspired by the action movie canon. Especially the high-flying classics of Hong Kong cinema. Designed by me! Need we say more? Of course we didn't. But the gang at Atlas will think it's weird if we don't. Redeem your past misdeeds as a bullet-spraying killer. Heal the world through butt-kicking as the wise Sifu. Blast miscreants with the raw key power as a sorcerer. Channel the power of pure awesomeness as a transformed dragon. Or brain dudes with a parking meter as the big bruiser. 36 character types in all, bursting with furious action. Fight the bad guys who want to control the world. In the history-spanning conflict called the Chi War. Fought in the far past, the near past, a devastated future and now, now, now! For years, the number one question I got at cons was, when are you updating Feng Shui? Tons of people tell you the original changed the way they GM'd everything. And they're right, because they're experts on their own gaming experience. Well, now in a golden comeback for all time, Feng Shui has been updated, improved, streamlined. And clocks in at... 354 pages of gorgeously illustrated eye-smacking color. If your key powers can't stop a bullet, this stunning hardback can. You know it if you back the Kickstarter. But maybe you bought the PDF only in order to support your local game store. Or like a full metal nutball neglected to grab the stunning GM screen. So now's the time to formulate a crazy plan that just might work. And contact your game retailer of choice. Reserving your copy of Feng Shui 2. That badass GM screen. And blowing up the movies, Robin's standalone book of essays on the action movie classics. Taking you inside the workings of 24 action movies. From the stone-cold classic to the unjustifiably obscure. Each essay shows you how the film delivers. And the lessons you can extract from it to enhance your own efforts as GM or player. So that's Feng Shui 2 in all its full-color glory. The GM screen and its likewise fetching utility. And blowing up the movies in all of its fun and dare I say it. You do dare, Robin. You do. Incisiveness. In retail soon. Go forth, dragons. Blow things up and... Save the the world! It's time again for Among My Many Hats, the segment in which the covert self-promotion of this podcast turns into overt self-promotion as we discuss one of our upcoming projects. And in this case, almost as if it occurs on a monthly basis, we're again talking about Ken Writes About Stuff. That's the subscription series of PDFs that Ken does for Pelgrane Press, and a recent Silver Any winner. And this time we're talking about a uh, KWAS, near and dear to my heart, and that would be Mutant City Spies. That's a campaign frame that takes Mutant City Blues, the police procedural game set in a world 10 years after 1% of the population developed mutant superpowers, and shifts it over into a different genre or a different core activity, and that is the spy genre. So uh, this consists, uh, as Ken's campaign frames often do, of some uh, crunchy bits and some setting bits. So Ken, how did you uh, set about 
initially uh, tackling this campaign frame? Well, the initial tackling came from uh, having, you know, obviously it's sort of a spillover from doing Knights Black Agents. And so a lot of it is the spillover from stuff I'd been looking at during Knights Black Agents, specifically things like uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. comics, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the TV show, and the general overlap between spies and superheroes that you know, has already existed. So unlike um, sort of police procedural with superheroes, which is only, you know, top 10 and maybe Gotham City PCD and, you know, nothing else, pretty much. Well, the, the Gotham TV show the, now. The Gotham TV show now. But at the time you wrote it, ha ha, Gotham was like nothing. But there was a lot of sort of espionage themed superhero stuff. So it became a matter of sort of refamiliarizing myself with some of that and then thinking, what are the things within the Mutant City Blues world that can expand out into spy fiction. Because what I didn't want to do was write necessarily the superpowered add-on for Knights Black Agents, although obviously you can use this as that. I, I thought it was more fun to look at the actual Mutant City Blues world and say, where are where do spies fit in? How do you put spies in? And so a lot of that came down to, well, the first and foremost thing that happens in the Mutant City Blues world is that the, you know, CIA and the uh, specials and everybody else don't accept the fact that people who got superpowers were in many cases some sort of weedy psychopath with bad uh, sociological tendencies instead of good clean-cut soldier types and patriots. Uh, so they would start working on duplicating superpowers technologically. So basically I had to first come up with the gadget rules for uh, Mutant City Blues so that you could have your sort of shield agent who, while they may or may or may not be super, at least they're a reliable agent and therefore they can duplicate some of the powers with uh, technology that exists. And then it's a matter of balancing the sort of, you can buy it as opposed to have to go through the Quaid diagram for it, uh, technology with the superpowers that you get in Mutant City Blues so that a gadget wielding agent is comparable to, but slightly inferior to an actual super if they're trading blow for blow with the same superpower. And, and for those uh, living in a condition of benighted darkness, the Quaid diagram is sort of the, the core of Mutant City Blues. It's my uh, favorite uh, chart I've ever designed. And what that is, is it tracks the positions of all the different superpowers uh, because they appear predictably on the genome and they cluster together so that you might have, uh, you know, venom and web uh, powers, but you're not going to have uh, venom plus uh, fire powers because those are elsewhere on the diagram. Mm -hmm. And then in the uh, game, you connect those up as you create your character. And so you have to pick ones that cluster reasonably close together. And in the world, uh, everybody's aware of this. And, and for example, the police and presumably also the spies in a Mutant City spy uh, game, when they find out that both webbing and uh, a fire have been used at a scene, and it's obviously super-powered fire because there's forensics in this mm -hmm. world that allows you to distinguish uh, one from the other. You know that you're dealing with two potential enemy agents at least, rather than one who has the same set of powers. And so uh, what you're allowing here is the ability to sort of break out a bit from that and have characters who use uh, gadgets instead of their innate powers. Now, were you uh, thinking that this would support uh, non-board player characters who would use the gadgets instead of the powers? Yeah, I think that the goal would be to allow, I mean, first of all, it's a very common thing in the sort of the 
deep background of the subject matter where in order for Nick Fury or Batman to be able to stay on the same field as a superpowered character, they have a gadget that reproduces some aspect of the superpowers, even if it's just a blaster that, you know, shoots, you know, awesome blast beams instead of stupid old bullets. Or in Batman's uh, case, there's a a whole raft of of little things that come out of his uh, utility belt that give him the equivalent of powers for a while. And that's the sort of thing that you know, if you're building a uh, special ops team, especially a cinematic type special ops team where everyone has a niche, although actually that was how it turns out how the SAS sort of organizes its team. So they were thinking about role playing uh, even back in the 80s. So good for you, SAS. But <laughs> everyone has a, has a niche protection so that if you don't have, you know, if, if one guy's got webbing, someone else can have fire. Uh, and if you didn't want to go the whole way of, of building a, a superpower that, uh, you know, and spend all of those points just to get webbing, you can have a webbing gun and you're basically cool. Uh, so the, the goal was to either empower all normals with some superpowers, but they've, uh, bought them or a good mix so that you can have a sort of, you know, Nick Fury type guy who's in there with the other guys, but is still able to at least have something to do during superpowered uh, action or combat scenes. Now, the standard character generation in Mutant City Blues sort of uh, ensures in a way that all of your powers are thematically linked and also avoids uh, mostly, I think, uh, clustering all of the super cool powers all into one area so that you have uh, niche protection there. And how do you uh, do that with the gadgets? Well, with the gadgets, uh, they're expensive is basically how I bring uh, sort of its brute force uh, balance because buying a power that is different from the power that your gadget does is super expensive. So you wind up... And that's expensive in uh, character points, not in uh, money. Yeah, not in, you know, in life. Although if you buy a, a gadget that causes a power that already causes a, um, uh, a, a derangement, uh, as many powers do, they, they lead to psychological problems because the sort of psychological stress of the story is... it's. You know, and even more present in spy fiction than it is in police procedurals. The, the, the gadget will still cause that, that derangement. It's just that you don't, you, you, one of the slight advantages of this is that you wind up, uh, not having to buy the middle power in the segment that will definitely give you the derangement if you don't want it. But the, the, you know, the counterbalance is that, uh, gadgets are really expensive. They don't work as well as someone who actually has the power, which is sort of, one hesitates to use the word realistic, but I'll, I'll do it, uh, which is both realistic. Plausible. Let's say plausible. Yeah, let's say plausible, uh, which is a plausible uh, outcome of a world where superpowers have been have been there for 10 years, which is the default setting for Mutant City Blues. Right. And unlike actually having Flame Blast as your innate mutant power, if you have it, uh, Flame Blast gun, that can be taken away from you. You can be cut yes. on the head and stuck your power. Yeah. Um, and presumably also in the world, since one of the conceits is that uh, not only do these uh, powers exist, but they're uh, mostly explicable through forensic science. Presumably also there's a way of doing the test to see whether uh, a, a flame blast, uh, where you just see the traces at the scene that somebody's obviously used a flame blast rather than any you know typical mundane source of uh, setting something on fire, that you can still even tell the difference between, oh, this is a flame blaster, uh, and perhaps even, oh, this is the... Uh, uh, the Western block flame blaster uh, versus the uh, cheap knockoff flame blaster that you can get in Thailand and also different than an innate mutant flame blaster power, which can provide sort of an interesting set of dimensions and, and clues to what it is that uh, that you're doing as you uncover 
uh, facts because, of course, it's still a gumshoe game and it's still all about finding out what's going on. Yeah, uh, basically anything that leaves a trace is going to leave its own special trace. I didn't, I don't know if I necessarily called that out in the write-up, but I, um, like I say at the beginning, this is the Mutant City Blues world, so nothing contradicts Mutant City Blues. So yeah, that um, that is at the very least assumed, and I may even have called it out somewhere under um, uh, you know the criminalistics power or right. whatever. We're, we're assuming it now. Yes, um, and of course these um, uh, Ken writes about stuff are like five to seven thousand words, so it's yeah. not a whole additional other role-playing game that no. answers every single possible question you could ever have about this. Um, and so one of the things that you do answer, though, is what happens to our world with its uh, geopolitics 10 years from now. And basically, Mutant City Blues doesn't try to project itself far into the future. It just sort of says, we've had these for 10 years and doesn't mm -hmm. deal too much with that. Um, but you deal with the question of what do all of the different uh, nations who field spy agencies how do they react and what are their different uh, responses to the existence of mutant powers? Do you have a, a few favorites that you could highlight? One of the things that I did was I sort of played with your notion that uh, the front pages are the same front pages that, um, uh, you know, you, you didn't change the world with superpowers. They just sort of happened and then you go back to stopping bank robberies. Right. You, you don't have a lot of crime uh, costume crime fighters in right. this world, for example. In fact, what happened is initially people went, oh, we've got superpowers, let's put on costumes and either rob banks or stop people in costumes from robbing banks. And then they went out and did that, and people died horribly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, so as you would. Right, and so that's not such a thing. Because, so it's, it is a revisionist version of, of superheroes. So the revisionist uh, superhero trope uh, geopolitically plays out how? It plays out that uh, everyone who was going to become a supervillain went and, you know, did it covertly. And because they, you know, they, if they did it overtly, they would have been stopped. So that explains sort of your Dr. No type guy the, who suddenly winds up with an, an island full of, you know, mechanical sharks or whatever. He's uh, a new Superman who is uh, building his dream biology somewhere and the spy agencies have to stop him. So it's a little more super in the same way that spy action is a little more action-y usually in uh, certainly in serial drama than police procedurals, it still explains why it doesn't wind up in the headlines because, you know, the uh, it's not in the headlines. It's the same way that, you know, Boko Haram isn't in the headlines unless, you know, there's some unless amazing outrage. Horrible. Well, actually, they're constantly doing horrible things. They have to do things that are incredibly horrible. Yes, but, but they have to do something really horrible and near a TV camera to uh, make it, you know, into the front pages you know, over whatever else we're, we're worried about one day. And so there's, it assumes that, yeah, the, the rampaging armies of hyper killers don't exist in, you know, London or New York, but they probably exist out in, you know, Paraguay or Central Africa or somewhere. And so the, uh, and so the, all the things that you thought superhero action was is now the job of people like, uh, Delta Force or whatever. So I'm, I'm, I sort of went through each of the various groups and figured out how their native, bureaucracy and what their sort of corporate culture as a spy agency might mean for the world. So, for example, uh, in Japan, there are two competing intelligence groups. There's the DIH, which is Defense Intelligence Headquarters, and they're building battle suits, of course, because it's Japan, uh, with their gadgets. They're trying to build a, a gadget Iron Man, basically. And there's the Naicho, which is the neglected 
sort of cabinet level intelligence office. And so they are free to recruit non-traditional assets like uh, teenage girls or old men or whatever. As long as you've got superpowers, you can join Nitro now. And so that gives you a, a very Japanese uh, feeling while still being explicable in terms of their actual espionage arrangement. Right. And if you give everybody a motorcycle and, and a weird helmet, it's came in. Exactly. Rider. Right. And so um, you have another uh, sort of a situation in Russia. I, I decided that one of the reasons that people are, are keeping this on the DL is that in Russia, some mutant used self-detonation to destroy the city of Voronezh in um, uh, uh, what's called PY plus nine, right? The year after the ghost flew plus nine. And so the Russians are all paranoid about it, but they're blaming everybody else. And they're, um, they're basically gearing up their, their defense industries to build gadgets in the same way that in the Cold War, they were building, you know, a bunch of tanks. And, uh, the, the reason is because they have this sort of horrible Chernobyl style disaster that they can currently blame on other powers, but may or may not have been connected to their own weird, murky internal politics. So everyone has sort of a, a version of it because MI6 has, you know, a, a institutional devotion to human. I said, well, that means they, that they employ more mutants and fewer gadgets just because that's their corporate culture. And I had a, um, an Interpol equivalent for superpowered crime, uh, called Jima, which is, uh, founded by the French because the French, of course, look at everything as a, as a way to say, how can we become the most important kid at the table? And, uh, so they created Jima, which is the, the, the Interpol variant for superpowered, uh, crime and weirdness. So it's Le Groupe International des Menaces Augmentes, the International Heightened Threats Group. And so they, uh, that gives you an excuse for your characters who were formerly Montreal or, uh, um, uh, San Francisco cops to go into Europe and, and fight, uh, a weird spy crime and then get dragooned into the secret world by dint of whatever you've uncovered as part of that. And then I came up with three new terrorist groups. If you wanted to, if you wanted to assume that as in the real world, uh, terrorist groups like, uh, uh, basketball franchises, they, they, they change in the rankings over, over a decade. Uh, so you've got a, um, a left-wing group and a, uh, Muslim terrorist group and a right-wing terrorist group so that everyone, uh, can punch their own personal enemy. And, uh, I came up with a fascist coup d'etat, a super fascist coup d'etat in Syria. So you even have a good old Latveria to go pick on if you want to. Yes. Well, left-wing terrorism has been sleeping for a while. So maybe superpowers would uh, bring it back. So basically just the way that, uh, law and order spawned a number of spinoffs. One way that you could envision this as this is the spinoff show that happens in the same universe as Meet and City Blues, but is actually, you know, it's the spy series and that, you know, it might, you know, doesn't have to live up totally to the f one feeling and the other or, or match up. And you don't necessarily have to go back when you play your Mutant City Blues game again to ever acknowledge the uh, other stuff or try and uh, reconcile it. But it also gives you, Ken, a chance to kind of play with the kind of more uh, Bondian or Mission Impossible or just sort of swinging 60s style spy tropes that didn't uh, fit so well in the kind of Bourne-inspired uh, spy milieu that you uh, drew on for Night Spike Agents. Right. Yeah. This, this lets you play over the top because you literally have superpowers. And so you can look at things like Suicide Squad, which is, of course, the greatest, uh, covert action superpower comic ever. Um, and you could, you could play that if you wanted to, or you could play something inspired by that with that same sort of attitude towards both power and government power. Uh, or you can uh, move it more into the sort of modern day future 
you know, using the God Save You, uh, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show as your model. Or uh, pull it back, ideally, to the good old Steranko pop spy 60s from... uh, the real uh, Nick Fury in the Agents of Shield. Uh, well, you'll ha- you'll have to hew to a, a more realistic '60s spy vibe for uh, the fall of Delta Green. So it was good for you to have a chance to uh, to play with those tropes and, and images in a chaos. And uh, hopefully, there'll be enough uh, demand to uh, have one of us do more with that in another format later. And once I'm predicting vague future events, I'm clearly tipping my hat that among my many hats has come to a close. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of nonstop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for pre-order by you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope! Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available for pre-order at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. The aroma of garlic and onions wafting through the air, the hiss of the gas being turned up, and the thump of the oven door tell us that we've entered the food hut, the delicious-smelling confines thereof. Oh, the best-smelling hut of all. The best-smelling hut of all. Far better than many of our huts, actually. Better than the gaming hut by a By by a good bit. Even even in today's modern, clean, regularly-bathed gamers, they just don't smell as good as garlic and onions, because nothing really does. It's the Doritos, man. Right. And and the stale pizza. It's really, that's, that's what it is. That said, here in the food hut, uh, we are banishing such unhealthy concepts as Doritos and stale pizza, although both of them could be vegetarian, because today we're talking about the vegetables. They're necessary for our health, so why do they insist on tasting like vegetables? And here uh, we will bend our various genius to tricking them into being tasty. Robin, what is your number one tricking the vegetables trick? Uh, well, the first thing is you have to you have to look at evolution and think like a vegetable. The vegetable 
does not want to be delicious because uh, unlike, uh, for example, various delicious animals, the vegetable is not mobile. It is uh, stuck in one place and it does not want to sit there being all delicious because then uh, we or birds or monkeys or fish or what have you will, will come and uh, eat it. So over the many centuries of uh, uh, agriculture and cooking food, uh, cooking, of course, is a big ingredient in making uh, vegetables uh, uh, good for us omnivores and not just for herbivores. Uh, so we have to trick vegetables, as you suggest, into uh, being delicious. And there are uh, two main uh, ways of doing that. And uh, we'll start with grilling. And if we uh, talk about grilling for 15 minutes, we'll come back and talk about roasting vegetables in the future. I can't imagine we'll talk about grilling vegetables for 15 minutes, but go ahead. So there's all sorts of things that you can put on the grill in order to delicious them up. There's uh, nothing like the uh, near proximity of fire plus a sauce or a coating in order to uh, uh, make something delicious. So there's, uh, first of all, let's start with something that's not technically a vegetable, but we consider it as such for dietary purposes. And that is, of course, the not so humble mushroom. So uh, on the evolutionary level, it may turn out that the uh, fungi are closer to being animals uh, than being vegetables. But like the vegetables, they are not, they're stationary and easily caught. And uh, once you catch them, uh, you can uh, put them on the grill and uh, a standard white mushroom, if you just uh, cut it in small segments and put it on the grill, will uh, get delicious all on its own. Or you can do the same with a portobello mushroom, which... Uh, portobello mushrooms, how God tells you he doesn't hate vegetarians. Uh, indeed, yes. Uh, a portobello mushroom is uh, a cremony mushroom with ambitions. It's They're actually the same uh, item with different names, depending on what size they're sold in. Uh, the great thing about portobellos is you can slice them into nice big chunks that you can easily handle on the grill and turn over with your fork. And also, uh, any mushroom is very amenable to uh, being marinated in something to make it even more delicious. So, uh, for example, if you have the foresight to take up uh, your mushrooms and cut them up ahead of time and put them in a uh, plastic bag, like a freezer bag with some olive oil, either just straight up olive oil or possibly a flavored olive oil, like a lemon infused one or a truffle oil. Or even your, your favorite uh, good quality Italian dressing. Uh, yes. Uh, and uh, you can add some balsamic vinegar to that. And uh, if it's grilling season, it's also fresh herb season. So if you uh, uh, grow or purchase some fresh herbs, you can put them in uh, as part of the marinade, chop up some basil or uh, chives nice and fine, and put them in to leak their delicious flavor onto the uh, mushroom and uh, put them in a bag for a couple of hours. And then when they come out, uh, they will have uh, an interesting uh, new taste to them, which will make them a nice variant from the last time you just uh, cooked them uh, in uh, straight up olive oil. And uh, that will give you a, a sort of a range of flavors that you can get out of your uh, mushroom. What's the next thing we want to talk about grilling, Ken? Well, I want to I want to go back and hit olive oil because the key to flavor is uh, fat. And that's just the truth. Uh, that's biological medical truth. It's not me advocating for my sedentary lifestyle. It's how the world works. And if you're going to pick a fat, the olive oil is, is a virtuous, upstanding fat. Olive oil, will, it's practically not even fat in the nasty bad sense. And it still contains... Uh, all the beautiful flavor of the oil and fat category, and it will help you stay vegetarian if you are feeling vegetarian. And it actually has a flavor, a beautiful, fruity, uh, fresh flavor, unlike your flavorless oils, which are also good, but less crucial in vegetable time, because, again, the problem with vegetables is they don't taste delicious yet. So uh, olive oil pretty much 
as a by and large rule, except of course on fresh corn when butter is what you put on that. Um, but the, uh, but the, uh, the presence of oil when you're either roasting or grilling is sort of a, a ne plus ultra of certainly cooked vegetables, uh, moving them into deliciousness. I would say that, uh, the other great grilling vegetable obviously is any of your various, uh, cucumber and zucchini and, um, uh, squash families, not your cucumber so much cucumber you put in your drink and then you've made your drink delicious, whether your drink is water or vodka. I, I hereby unraise my eyebrow at the mention of grilled cucumbers. Yes. Right. Uh, what I meant was to say squash and uh, zucchini and that neck of the woods, you, you can cut those up. They can be grilled almost with the, uh, efficacy of a mushroom, although not quite because they are actual vegetables, but again, a little oil, a little, uh, even just a little salt, but you can also put, uh, herbs on them. If you are so lucky as to have herbs, you can put that on in the post grilling or pre grilling process, depending on how you feel about burning your herbs a little bit. And, uh, dried spices also work here. So like an yes, Cajun absolutely. spice, you can dredge a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, uh, almost any uh, vegetable you're grilling could be uh, dredged in that or some herb de Provence. Yes, a or... lot of good uh, spice shops will uh, have a pre-mixed blend of herbs that they call ratatouille seasoning, uh, since ratatouille is basically trying to make vegetables delicious only in French. <laughs> Um, it, it's, you, it uses a lot more vowels to do it. But yes, yeah. you're right. You buy you buy that as a one stop shop, and then even if it's not fresh herb season, you have something that you can put into almost any sort of uh, ve- uh, fresh vegetable uh, collation or connection um, to uh, to to herb up and make tasty. Uh, yes, and uh, the mention of squash brings up another uh, grilling trick. If you're grilling on a day that's not un- also unbearably hot in your kitchen, which sometimes it is. Uh, but if you can stand to boil some water ahead of time, a lot of vegetables that you want to grill will be uh, much, much better if you blanch them ahead of time. And what that does is it allows uh, the uh, centers to cook and then start to get softer so that you're not uh, burning the outside of your squash or, say, your Brussels sprout uh, while you're trying to get it to cook uh, inside. Uh, that's also a, a trick you'll want to use in, in roasting a lot of things as well. And for your first-time uh, uh, cook or early uh, explorer into the magical kitchen world, a blanching, of course, is you put it into boiling water for a little bit, and then you take it out and put it into icy cold water to stop the cooking process, but you've begun it just enough to uh, begin breaking down the, the fibers and the and the flavor without turning it mushy. Right. And uh, timing-wise, depending on the vegetable, it's usually anywhere from like about three to uh, to seven minutes. Um, right. And so uh, what you can do there is, is for example, uh, now, if it is too hot and too unbearable, uh, your microwave will suffice in uh, doing about the same thing, not quite as well, but it will still do it for pretty much any vegetable that you want to be nice and soft on the grill without scorching the outside of it. So uh, that would be your butternut squash pieces. That would be, again, your Brussels sprouts, your green beans, your uh, uh, small baby carrots. The uh, baby carrots are a great thing for the lazy uh, vegetable griller uh, because those are now, of course, some people are offended when they find out that they're not actual baby carrots who've been uh, untimely ripped from their parents, but in fact are regular carrots that have been chewed down by an industrial process into those little easy-to-handle pieces. But those easy-to-handle pieces are uh, great on the grill, especially if you get yourself a uh, barbecue basket to put in your grill, and that's a a metal basket with the holes for the uh, heat to get through. And that's another thing that you'll want to think about if you're grilling vegetables is your various uh, grill uh, accessories that make that easier to do. Uh, there are also uh, vegetable baskets that you can uh, sort of put in. You can suspend them over 
whatever it is uh, else that you're cooking on the grill, or also a uh, either a disposable aluminum uh, plate or a sheet or perhaps a permanent one, and that enables you to use uh, vegetables in smaller pieces that would otherwise fall through uh, the grill. So something that I might do there is a mix of uh, a couple of vegetables, let's say uh, tomatoes or uh, scallions or even some garlic, and then also uh, maybe some uh, beans as part of the mix as well, like some yes. pini beans or uh, navy beans or chickpeas. And so you can get a nice sort of a melange of different things going there. Uh, obviously, a bean would fall through your grill immediately to its uh, hideous screaming death, wondering, why, why did you do this to me? If only I was ambulatory like an animal. But no, now you have your way of uh, protecting it so that you can eat that uh, uh, bean in its uh, non-ambulatory glory. And as a uh, once you're doing that, you're practically sautéing the things, my friend. Uh, and sautéing is another of the secret weapons you can use because it turns out a great way to get oil onto a vegetable is to put it into a little uh, skillet and heat it up, and then you put your chopped vegetables into it. And you can even do this with the least prepossessing of vegetable. I have physically seen a Brussels sprout turn from the ballast that was brought over by Belgian settlers in America, hence its name, uh, into an actual edible object by simply, um, well, first of all, you have to get good Brussels sprouts. That's kind of a key. But uh, assuming you have good Brussels this sprouts. This is key to all vegetables is yes, uh, get this, the freshest get possible ones. ones. Um, yes. That's a big problem if you want to uh, catch more of these uh, delicious non-ambulatory vegetables is that they've been Part of our uh, process of breeding vegetables is to make them more delicious, but unfortunately, part of the process of breeding vegetables has also been to make them more transportable and ergo easier to carry in a truck, much less uh, delicious. So, and yes, if you think of the qualities of being easy to carry in a truck and the qualities of being delicious, that's not a big overlap. Right, and we can thank sort of a, a revolution in packaging. We are starting to see, uh, for example, tomatoes show up store in stores in a clamshell format. Now, in some cases, those tomatoes are have no more flavor to them than uh, the, 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 the other, other tomatoes sitting over there uh, loose. Uh, and if you, uh, the trick, of course, is to smell them. And if a tomato smells like anything, it tastes like something. Uh, but mm -hmm. we're starting to see, for example, heirloom tomatoes show up in uh, clamshells in your better stock uh, su supermarkets. And the difference between adding a tomato to something that tastes of tomato as opposed to a uh, tomato that tastes of uh, vaguely cold water is uh, night and day. So uh, yeah. one of the real tricks to uh, making vegetables delicious is if you can, and obviously this is a uh, thing for people with a certain amount of leisure and a certain amount of money, but if there is a produce market that stocks fresher stuff or a a farmer's market in your area, one of the, the tricks to cooking with vegetables is to decide what you're going to cook after you go to the store and pick up whatever it is that looks good. Whatever is the freshest possible vegetable. Right. So something yes. might, you know, the chard look, may look really great one day or, you know, the Brussels sprouts, you might have planned to do something with Brussels sprouts and you get there and they're looking weedy and past their prime. So it's time to or look um, uh, inert, which is how they mostly look. Right. Um, and yeah. so it's time to, you know, look around to see uh, what else is looking good and fresh and interesting and plan uh, your meal accordingly. And that's why it's a good thing that uh, most vegetables go well together, that if you uh, do a big uh, pan of something on the on the grill or uh, or whatever that uh, if you combine them together it sort of doesn't matter which things you uh, 
put together uh, whatever you come up with. If you get three or four really delicious uh, veggies, that'll be uh, that'll be good. And the other thing is that uh, once you've come up with a a sauce or a treatment that works for any given vegetable, odds are that it will also work for the other vegetables of its class. So anything that you like for a white bean, for example, or a kidney bean, pinto bean, that area, will work with any of the beans in its area. Anything that works really well on asparagus will work perfectly well on broccoli or Brussels sprouts or any of the other uh, green and stalky vegetables, although, of course, because they're not as wonderful as asparagus, it will still taste less wonderful, but it will work. And uh, the, the basic thing that you can do with any of those green stalky vegetables is, like I say, you saute it in whatever kind of fat you have on hand. If you are uh, me, you use bacon fat, of course, but if you are other people, you might use olive oil and you can use um, uh, butter also is another excellent choice. And you can use uh, shallots. The silver bullet weapon of the home chef is if you have shallots, you can cut them up and you can use them to cook anything uh, like vegetables that has a more delicate flavor than meat does. And so the shallots will still provide that oniony gallium deliciousness, but they won't beat up the vegetable the way if, if you actually sliced up an onion and cooked uh, a Brussels sprout with that. It would then taste like weird, terrible onion as opposed to really great Brussels sprout. And so you do fat, shallots, whatever your favorite herb is, enough salt that you can bring out the actual flavor of the Brussels sprout, but don't oversalt it, obviously, and then lemon. And that is the other thing. That is using fruit to as a traitor against its cousins, the vegetables, <laughs> to make vegetables ever so tasty. Because lemon, uh, on any kind of... I mean, I think it probably even works if you go all the way down into the carrots and squash, but uh, it works so well on greens that I've never bothered even trying to go up up the scale. The one thing you don't want to combine it with is is a really good tomato. That uh, yeah, no, a, because an, they're both citrus basically, yeah, and so they'll fight. Yeah, uh, but gener yeah, generally, if you can get any acid in the in the mix, yeah, vinegar obviously is the other yeah. possibility. You can use that. Uh, but uh, if you've got a lemon, use lemon zest. Use lemon, you know, squeeze some lemon juice. Even your bottled lemon juice will often be better than whatever you were going to do if whatever you were going to do is nothing. But if you have a nice vinegar, this would be the time to try that out. And if it's a really good vinegar, you generally don't want to cook with it. You generally want to put it on as a dressing at the end of the process. Although, obviously, uh, this is one of those areas where the scores can change because you can make, for example, uh, balsamic onions and cook down super good balsamic vineyard and get super good, super duper good balsamic onions. But again, that's onions, which cheat by already being delicious. Right. Um, now, you've already moved into the uh, into the kitchen to saute, but I'm still out uh, on yeah, the I grill. Uh, there are certain uh, vegetables that are uh, become magical when grilled, uh, and uh, the scallion is uh, number one because it will start to sort of caramelize uh, in and of itself. And the uh, flavor and texture that you get from it on the grill is quite different than if you uh, saute or roast it. So, uh, you know, get a big bunch of uh, scallions. Make sure they're, uh, if you can, coming from a part of the world that's not having a salmonella outbreak because uh, <laughs> uh, ideally. ideally that's a big problem with uh, scallions in particular and a lot of uh, onions and produce in general. Yes, wash your vegetables before you uh, cook them, right. just by and large, right. because even if it isn't having a salmonella outbreak, there may be just that little globule of pesticide or something clinging to its underside. And then won't you look like a fool? 
if you've uh, ingested pesticides. Now, there are certain things that you can't uh, get rid of that are, you know, grown into a plant when it's been grown in the wrong place. But let's assume a healthy scallion. Yes. Let's assume this is <laughs> the, the, the North America or European listening audience where pretty much the vegetable crops are safe for now. Well, except they quite often come from places when they're not. But that's yeah. a different thing. But anyway, be, be aware of what part of the world you shouldn't be eating the, the food of. And uh, there's a reason why they post... Uh, where the what countries the uh, vegetables are coming from, mm-hmm. um, and uh, also the uh, the pepper. I, I don't like me a green pepper. I find them too bitter. But when they grow up into their full adulthood as uh, red or yellow or uh, orange peppers, uh, they are also uh, deeply profound when uh, grilled and uh, or roasted or, or roasted as well. A roasted uh, red pepper is a thing of beauty and a joy forever. Yes, I'm not uh, casting aspersions on the roasted vegetables, but I am. Uh, lengthening this segment so that we've uh, covered grilling and sautéing, and we can make roasting a sequel for later, for uh, all huts must come to an end, uh, even the food hut, and this food hut is closing up until we open it up again in a future podcast. is also brought to you by the Kickstarter campaign for Trans Reality New Worlds, a graphic novel by Chris Lackey. It's the sequel to the brain-bending, reality-shifting, neurologically terrifying Trans Reality. Trans Reality New Worlds finds our heroes... James, a 21st century man. Sony, a teenager exploring the limits of her new reality. And Alexis, an uplifted pink gorilla. Exploring the galaxy in search of James's long-lost children. In a world where people exist as digital beings in virtual environments. And can make copies of themselves. Or download themselves into physical living bodies. And nothing can possibly go wrong with that. Except possibly everything. Explore artificial intelligence and hackable humanity in trans-reality new worlds. Kickstarting until Wednesday, September 2nd. If it's just after Gen Con, uh, long-time listeners may be suspecting that it's time to uh, bring back that very uh, occasional intermittent segment, uh, Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. And we're going to recycle some audio from some Gen Con panels in the weeks ahead. And this will enable us to do the uh, piecing together that covers me while I'm off at the film festival. And we'll get an extra episode out of it. But we're not going to stick them all together in one segment. That would be a bit much. And the first one of these... uh, for all of these, uh, we must thank colleague podcaster extraordinaire uh, Ben Riggs, who uh, came up to our tables and plopped down an actual sophisticated recording device. A fancy device. And recorded uh, both the Pelgrane panel and the uh, investigative role-playing panel. And so we'll be uh, hearing excerpts uh, from that in the future. And uh, for the uh, investigative panel, uh, Ben even noted the questions in a notebook and then rephrases them in his uh, recordings of the uh, episode, which, of course, is something we often fail to do when left to our own devices. But anyway, that's that's in the future. And today uh, we're going to uh, listen in on a bit of the uh, Palgrain panel, which was what, Swords, Spies, and Shoggoths was our 
groovy subtitle for that? Uh, yeah, Swords, Spies, and Shagas. I think that um, that has been the subtitle for a couple of years now, and it keeps getting better. It has S's in it. must be good. So um, I uh, initially didn't think we'd have a ton of stuff to excerpt from this because, of course, we talked about our upcoming projects that we announced on our Gen Con podcast. But it turns out that when we uh, do talk about things in the panel... Uh, that we're talking about them uh, from a different angle or with additional depth or mentioning things that we didn't mention at all because uh, we are not necessarily the lead designers on those. And often, while we are only suffering from two days of sleep deprivation instead of six. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the, the actual mention, you know, says the name of the product, for example, often a popular subject for products. Uh, but anyway, enough with the, uh, the meta commentary. Let's get on with the uh, recycled audio. Uh, this first bit, is a uh, discussion of the uh, remaining components of the Dracula dossier. I thought we'd talked about uh, all of the Dracula dossier, but there's still much, much more to come, isn't there, Ken? Oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes, there is, he said, meaningfully, staring deeply, deeply into the microphone, yeah. his bleary eyes refusing to focus. Uh, so as you, you listen to this, the uh, uh, soft-spoken British man is Simon Rogers, the Irish woman is Kat Tobin. Together they are now the co-honchos of Pelgrane Press. The Irish man is Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, the indispensable third man of the main Pelgrane writing troika. Uh, the uh, voice you hear that sounds like Ken's is Ken, and the voice that sounds like the voice you're currently hearing is me. And uh, we're now going to hear at least some of those voices, uh, me not so much, talk about the uh, flood of remaining components of the Dracula dossier. Okay, the, the, the rest of the Dracula dossier Kickstarter, the, the sort of add-on stretch goal extendomatics uh, part, is underway. We have, I think, all of the scenarios for the Edom files written except mine except now. One, yes. Right? <laughs> uh, mine is the Carmilla sanction in which the... Uh, the, uh, the, the Edom agents go into British-occupied Styria after World War II to execute Carmilla, and Kat was tasking me and saying, how long do you th are you working on this at all? Is there a prospect of ever? What is and I said, don't worry, Kat, I've watched The Restored Third Man, so I'm <laughs> into the research. But you, you didn't mention the full day that you were planning on spending in some Chicago library to yes, research right. some obscure part of, like, the British occupation of Austria, Austria. exactly. <laughs> um, and now, if you have a British occupation in Austria book in English, uh, you can't check it out from the University of Chicago Library because it's <laughs> on my coffee table. And so uh, Kat's response was delightful because it was, I forget what a capacious idea you have of research. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, Carmela Sanction is underway and will be done uh, very shortly, I'm sure. Uh, in the immediate post-Gen Con entrance. Uh, and then that will then set up the editing of the Edom files to make sure that they all can be fed into an ongoing under-the-fourth-generation campaign, or that as you play them, they can have knock-on effects on a modern-day Dracula dossier, so that if, you, if the um, uh, invasion of Edom in 1980 uh, for the Slayer elite goes really, really well, that's going to have major knock-on effects in Edom 2011. And if it fails utterly, then it will have other worse knock-on effects. And so the idea being that if you succeed at an early scenario, it will make the later campaign better or worse 
for you, and that will sort of add a little more historical context because the game is actually about the burden of history on the present. I mean, that's the secret. Well, it's not secret in the sense of hidden at all, but it's, we didn't say it in so many words until just now. Um, <laughs> then, Gar, you want to talk about the Edom Field Manual, I assume, or maybe you yeah. would rather talk about anything but the Edom Field Manual. <laughs> the Edom Field Manual, which is the semi-player-facing, semi-GM face, or semi-director-facing, semi-facing into the abyss uh, supplement we added uh, is nearly done. It nearly killed me. Um, basically, but it will have inside information on Edom, on playing Edom characters. It'll basically let you flip the whole campaign around and play from the perspective of the good guys, who are the guys using Dracula to you know, fight the war on terror, and nothing could possibly go wrong with that. Um, it will also have basically quick start stuff for its back agents. It will have in-character Edom handouts. If you want to know how the British government refers to vampires and the transportation thereof, without ever mentioning the word vampire for like you know ten pages for budget reasons, exactly. yes. <laughs> it's so much easier to get this stuff past the Home Secretary. Indeed, yeah. like use... packet A and packet B. Yeah. So, um, so that is going, and then I'm going yes. to uh, touch it just enough to get a, a credit. Exactly. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that then when people come up with it, uh, they, I, I can take credit yes. for it. Yes, and so you also touch the Hawkins Papers, which yes. is the lovely, lovely hand Oh, they're so beautiful. Oh, I, I envy people who get to see them for the first time. Indeed. Uh, the Hawkins Papers is this lovely folder of documents, um, none of which are necessary to the campaign, but just make it so much better than exalt. Just scatter them in and it makes everything tastier and more beautiful. Uh, they're done by Dean Engelhart who is uh, the uh, Cthulhu, Reborn. Cthulhu Reborn prop making genius. Uh, it, 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 so many forged documents. It, yeah. So much in trouble. It was great, thank you. Start, thank you. Can we have a letter and make it look authentic? And he goes, yes. Go, okay. Can we like, have photos and age them to make them look like really ancient? Yes. Can you do 17 telegrams going back and forth between Bucharest and London, particular days, like you know, have them all slightly different. Oh, lovely, lovely stuff. And then, um, oh, the uh, maps, and then the maps, maps. the maps, <laughs> and it's like, how many maps can we have? And Cat is always like, put more things in the Hawkins papers. It needs to be bigger. It needs to be more things. And so it's like, well, we've got some maps. How about a, how about a nineteen uh, an eighteen ninety four map of Romania that we found? <laughs> can we do that at scale? Uh, oh, uh, yes. And the London map, then, like you, know, lovely eighteen ninety five, right? Yeah, yeah. Look, map of London. Each individual building done perfectly. And meanwhile, back in Toronto, Chris Huth, who's a layout guy extraordinaire, is coming to my Thursday night gaming group. Going, I'm there are more maps. From, from that. <laughs> but that's for the book. That's yeah, not for the Hawkins yeah. papers. Right, right. Chris is untouch, untouching the Hawkins Indeed. papers. But um, we can then get Dean. I go, Dean, could you like you know, zoom in and remove those maps there and add maybe, we'll say, an abbey with a small lake next to it? And can we like, move those streets there and make it all look perfectly natural? Just stick in a large asylum over the wall. <laughs> and he goes, no problem. So we have a genuine 1895 map of London with Carfax and Seward's Asylum. And Hillingham as well. And Hillingham. And, oh, it's so pretty. And then there's notes taken on it by other Edom officials during the 1977 mole hunt when they pulled it out of the archives and said, oh, this was the psychic map yeah. of Britain or of London. Now we have to yeah. use it to hunt down Dracula's Stay Behind Network. Oh, it's so pretty. And, and it's going to be enormous. Yeah, and along with that, there's the Hawkins Annex, which is the basically... <laughs> Here's how to use this. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a tiny director's handbook addendum. Like, you know, if you give your players this handout, here's what it might mean. 
Yes. Maybe. <laughs> yes, the, the, the one that I did of all of the papers... Yes, it's is, the longest one, Ken. <laughs> is, ...is the note from, uh, from, from D uh, to himself recruiting the first generation of Dukes of Edom. And there are many, many hidden Easter eggs in it, mm-hmm. and I will leave it at that. But yeah, we've got to probably just do one fast proofreading pass on all yeah. those just to make sure that everything's copacetic. Make sure the Romania is spelled with a U in the 40s. Uh, that's always Stupid a hilarious one. Stupid. <laughs> pick up, pick up, pick an orthography. Um, and then other little sort of tweakity t- things like that, and then that will be done. Um, and uh, Thrill is the last And then Thrill is the last book, and that is, uh, as uh, as you can possibly tell, uh, Robin does Esoterus. I do Trail of Cthulhu. Robin does... Uh, Armitage Files, I do Dracula dossier. Robin does blowing up the movies. I say, I can watch movies. <laughs> so I'm going to be watching 36 Dracula movies and telling, uh, ideally, you and many other people like you how to apply the uh, mashup, the uh, day tournament, the picking out of a piece of the movie, of the story, and putting a movie around it. Uh, all of the movies, Dracula has a million different motivations. Seward has a million different... All of the movies change the story to suit the needs of the creative director. You can do that in your campaign. Don't feel pinned down to Stoker or even to Height and Hanrahan. And you will be able to pull those out. And hopefully by looking at the movies, you'll be able to look at the uh, look at the text as a resource as opposed to a prison. Yes. Well, that's that's just sloppy writing. Don't do that. But um, but the but but the, the the story beats and the character beats and, and even some of the visual stuff is all it all changes. It's all different, and it's part of uh, what makes this the text worth two and a half years of my life and God knows how much of Gareth's remaining life. Soon and, we can sleep. Soon we can sleep. <laughs> and so, uh, Thrill of Dracula will be the last thing I think we do, uh, uh, other than the. Wax cylinder on the wax and cylinder, yes. He's a terrorist, and Robin's thing, yeah, yes. And the NPC cards. And oh, the, the NPC, oh, and the NPC cards. Oh, yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. That'd be Chris's problem. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be fun. What? 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 Anyway, so I, I'm writing the uh, Esoterrorist campaign fr- frame for it, and that's called the Dracula's dossier, uh, because in that one, the, the Dracula unredacted book appears, and the book starts to manifest rumors that maybe some of this is real. Uh, because for one thing, the annotations actually, except for the part about vampires, seem correct. Seems like somebody in MI6 has has been has had something to do with that, and that causes all around the world outer dark entities begin to take on the qualities of Dracula, and then they all converge toward Romania to fight it out. So it's about all the Draculas fighting to become the Dracula. <laughs> there can be only fun. Yeah. And this is why. When you have the opportunity to tell to uh, promise that Robin will write something, you don't check with Robin first. <laughs> <laughs> you just say he will and trust to luck. Yeah. Uh, the the NPC cards. Um, I don't think we've got a form factor, but they are going to be usable in your uh, campaign. You can just lay them out and do a build a conspiracy. You can lay them out as a tarot. What are they going to meet today? Oh my God, this is awful. You can have them as reminders. You can stick them to the board. Use, use them uh, to, uh, to build your adversary map with string. Uh, and so there will be a poker games. There will be a document to, to explain how to do that uh, with them. And then even if you don't run Dracula dossier, it's going to be a great Knights Black Agents inspirational deck, and we'll have ways that you can do that as well. So that will happen, I think, uh, towards the end of this beautiful process, but it will happen. And 
Surely by now we are done with Dracula Dossier. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a running theme. <laughs> Which is a sentence you're looking forward to saying. You very offhandedly said the words wax cylinder. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is not something that usually just pops up. One, one, one of the elements in the Kickstarter campaign was that uh, backers were able to choose between Mina and Van Helsing as to who would leave a message uh, on a back cylinder for the players. Um, at some point, we will write a script, we will find our Mina, she will record a message, we'll stick it up on YouTube or something, or so, in some medium it will be transmitted to the players, I can play it as basically an auditory handout. I have priced actual wax cylinders, but we're apparently not going there. Note, this will not be an actual wax cylinder. <laughs> they're not... They're, yes. there's what, what warning, wax cylinder not made of wax, not a cylinder. <laughs> Digitally a cylinder. Because yeah. zeros and ones, yeah. that makes a cylinder, right? Yeah. If anyone has a wax cylinder player, we can put them in touch with the guys who make custom wax cylinders. If you want to go to town that way, you can, but we won't do it for you. Why would I do that? <laughs> My wax cylinder player is mint in box. <laughs> this next segment of paneling it discusses Kevin Culp's upcoming gumshoe game, Time Watch, which... As with so many things, time travel appears in its own wibbly-wobbly way whenever you desire it to appear. Time Watch is, is well underway. It's mainly edited. The extra components of it are uh, also well in hand. And there's loads of games running here at, uh, at uh, Gen Con. People have been really, really enthusiastic about it. I was always concerned, how can you possibly create a game where anyone can just jump anywhere in time? And in fact, probably Gargis... Yeah. Play the game of it. Probably talk more coherently about it than I can. It was fantastic fun. We ended up uh, we ended up trapped in an altered version of uh, Egypt in 2200 BC, ruled by future versions of ourselves, because we had failed to stop and we we will have failed to stop an invasion in uh, Florida in the 70s. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But once we crashed the spaceship from 2500, piloted by another future versions of ourselves, onto Giza, uh, the face of the Sphinx stopped being the guy across the table, and Dr. Breen killed future Dr. Breen, and yeah, it, all, it all ended well. But yeah, <laughs> it was a very. The closest thing to Kuwaiti to Captain Simon as we're walking down was noblest, the same level of IQ. You can do almost anything. It's such what's IQ. How do you solve this problem? But what means do you use to solve this problem? How cool do you solve this problem? How baroque do you want to get with your solution of stopping the guy running down there? And we got very baroque, like, you know, instead of chasing after, it was like, you know, I travel back in time, recruit that band of urchins, <laughs> bribe them, train them as a football team, so when he comes around the corner, he gets tackled by the best rugby team in England. That'll teach him. Oh, he's eaten them because he's a dinosaur. <laughs> and then uh, finally, for this bit of recycled Pelgrane panel, uh, you're going to hear me talk about a gumshoe one-to-one -one and the Esoterrorist's epic campaign, World Breaker. Okay, so uh, my next uh, thing that I'm going to uh, go back to tackling after a big... Uh, chunk of gig for somebody else is the remainder of Gumshoe 1 to 1 uh, and that is a version of Gumshoe tuned specifically for uh, one GM and one player uh, the thing about the mystery genre is that 
you actually rarely see ensemble mystery solving. It exists certainly, CSI and so forth, but you know, the vast majority of us, one detective solving a problem. And we've had a lot of people over the years say, well, I would just, can I have something to run for my husband or run for my wife or run for my son or whatever it is, you know, when you can't get a grip together. Uh, so Gumshoe should be able to do that. Uh, but when you start looking at how that would work, that actually means reconsidering a lot of basic assumptions about role-playing that even Gumshoe follows. So, for example, uh, character death shouldn't work the same way in an ensemble setting where, the, you know, if, if one character dies, the rest of the group can keep playing while that player creates a new character to jump in and parachute into the narrative. You know, you, there's no uh, Philip Marlowe novel where he just dies two-thirds of the way through <laughs> and the novel stops. Uh, or in, continues. Or continues. <laughs> yeah. Pardon me? There's a Poirot novel like that, though. Right, there's one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can uh, already do those ones. And in, in a Poirot yeah, novel, killing Philip Marlowe doesn't mean as much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so this, this is uh, how to uh, reconfigure Gumshoes so that one character can credibly know everything the character needs to know to solve the mystery, which partly means you know, just have a subset of abilities that are relevant to that personality that they're going to need in their environment, the way any mystery does, and also, you know, having a group of NPC advisors that the character can go to for more information. Um, and so, uh, and this is going to be our, uh, uh, you'll be able to, you know, port it to any genre of gumshoe or any genre of mystery, but to start with, this will be our uh, 40s hard-boiled Cthulhu game. So it's uh, Philip Marlowe uh, style or Sam Spade style adventures uh, investigating the mythos in 40s Los, Los Angeles. Um, did you want to talk about Worldbreaker as well? Uh, Worldbreaker is a world-spanning uh, esoteric campaign. Uh, it takes you uh, it's sort of, you know, our take on masks of Meralathotep or Eternal Lies except for uh, esoteric and it's a whole series of, because the setting material for the esoterist talks a lot about the sort of global implications of uh, esotericism and how the cells interact and what the fact that they're trying to rip open the membrane and let the outer dark entities pour through but that's always been very deeply in the background in any of the adventures that you're actually presented with well here's the one where you start to realize that all these different things happening all around the world are actually coalescing to this horrible thing so there's one where you're uh, encountering the outer dark entity influence on Boko Haram in Nigeria, another one where there's an epidemic of uh, sinister clown pranks throughout the world, uh, and uh, uh, so there's a whole series of adventures that sort of interlock together, and uh, that's uh, I guess in playtesting at this point. So the first draft is uh, written and done, and so it's just in, in development at this point. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. That is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our intrepid correspondent Kenneth Height back into history in order to um, modify it, turn it upside down, upend it, 
turn it inside out, or sometimes make it like the history we have always known. But in this case, uh, Time Incorporated is asking you to follow up on a comment that you made earlier and change the time stream considerably by making Leon Trotsky a bigger cowboy star than he uh, was going to be in the first place, and therefore uh, make him not a part of the Russian Revolution. So, Ken, how do you accomplish that? Okay, I should begin by saying that uh, when one actually does the research, as opposed to toss things off, uh, will they or nil they, it turns out that a very angry leftist film historian named Kevin Brownlow has gone back to the original... Uh, sort of source of the story that Trotsky acted as an extra in a number of short films uh, while he was in the United States. And uh, Trotsky was in the United States very briefly from January to uh, March or, or thereabouts for about three months in uh, 1917. And he was deported from Spain, basically, to America, and he hung out in what was a really nice apartment. It kind of amazed him that uh, a poor, literally bankrupt uh, revolutionary could afford such lovely things in uh, New York City. The natural conclusion not having occurred to him, he then sailed back to Russia to ruin it forever. Uh, but that was in March of 1917. So bet between that time, the story went about that in order to make ends meet, he acted as an extra when they were filming uh, various films in the New York area, which they were doing before the entire film colony decamped to Hollywood uh, towards the 1920s. And the evidence for this was a film called My Official Wife, which was a Vitagraph film that uh, it takes place in Russia and uh, that the Russian advisor on was sort of a, a left wing uh, activist type guy and that. The, the guy playing the station master in this uh, lost Vitagraph short, and there are little clips of it and stills that still survive, looks a heck of a lot like Leon Trotsky. And so it was suggested as people were sort of digging through film archives and saying, hey, is that Trotsky? And someone uh, much like myself said, well, I don't care if it was Trotsky. That's a way better story than whatever it actually was. <laughs> and it became sort of part of the filmic undernews, if you will, the, the sort of, uh, hey, did you know that uh, Leon Trotsky was in um, uh, my official wife. Part of that popular uh, kids uh, book series, uh, Where's Trotsky? Where's Trotsky? Exactly. It was very beloved until it turned out you just have to look for the biggest pile of corpses and there he was. Once you figured out the trick, it's no fun. Anyway, the sad thing is that My Official Wife was actually filmed in 1914 and therefore could not have had Leon Trotsky in it because he was not in America in 1914. He was in a... Some other Leon Trotsky looking... It was person. Leon Trotsky's weird time echo or perhaps someone from or perhaps it was me, but I went back and put him in the film in 1914 and then didn't didn't quite tie that off like a bow when I uh, finished my work. Um, the veil out was almost complete, but uh, it, it turns out that whoever that guy is, he's not Trotsky. And so the, the sad thing is that if I'm going to make him a film star, I have to begin by getting him into a film while he's in America in 1917. And I thought it was going to be the simple matter of just going to the producer's of uh, my official wife and saying, hey, that guy who played the station master has kind of a, a starey eye about him. He'd probably make a good gunfighter if you're doing a Western. And then the natural, uh, you know, follow through would follow through and he would become a a um uh, a, a great uh, hero of the silent screen he'd have about you know a decade long career before uh he had to learn english well enough to to have a uh, dialogue and then you know being the sort of adaptable guy that he was 
why not let, let him continue his career into the uh, sound era just like Tom Mix did and other uh, uh, Western stars who began as silent heroes and then uh, moved into the, the, the sound film? Because if you look at pictures of Trotsky in 1917, 1918, he's not a handsome man. He's no Stalin. Let's put it that way. But he does have that. First of all, he has the killing gentleman look down cold. Even before he starts all of his killing, you can see that he's a guy who's ready to get down to business. And if you take that sort of giant weird shock of hair off and you put a a cowboy hat on him, he looks like he could be, you know, maybe not Wyatt Earp, but he could be Virgil Earp. He could be maybe even Doc Holliday on a good day. And I think that 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 quality um, would come through certainly in a in a silent where you don't have to hear that he has a a squeaky uh, Russian accent. Um, And then eventually, uh, again, his his great gift was the speech. His voice was an instrument. He was able to use it. I think that once it comes down to it, if he's in the film Colony by the 1920s, getting him to become a great sound film actor is not as hard as it might sound. Because again, part of being a politician, being a successful orator and demagogue is obviously the art of acting and of emoting and conveying your emotions to other people. And in the same way that sort of Hitler and Mao both have these weird theatrical tendencies that you can see when you read about them. Um, I think that Trotsky also could have really found his metier uh, as a cowboy actor, as opposed to the creator of the red army. So now b- before we continue, uh, it has come to our attention that uh, weirdly enough, we have some very, very young viewers of this podcast and they, uh, now, they're very smart young viewers, so they probably know uh, who uh, Lenin was, uh, and they know who Stalin was, but maybe they don't know Trotsky so well, because he got uh, uh, shouldered out and some of the lost causers... <laughs> if you will. Of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, yes. Well, shouldered out and then ice-picked to the head out. So, uh, why don't we? Uh, why don't you give a quick capsule for the, uh, those who are uh, otherwise would have to go to Google on who Leon Trotsky was? Oh, shocker. Uh, Leon Trotsky was one of the sort of major uh, sort of agitators and thinkers in the Bolshevik movement, the the sort of hard left of the socialist movement in Russia. Um, He was actually criticized by Emma Goldman for being too much of a Menshevik. So take that, Trotsky. And a Menshevik is? A Menshevik is a a normal kind of socialist, the kinds of guys who actually overthrew the czar and said, well, now we have a social democracy. Everything's fine. We're we're like uh, Sweden will be in 50 years or Britain will be in 60 years. So who who doesn't love us? And it turned out the people who didn't love them were the Bolsheviks. But uh, Trotsky, uh, when he took over uh, as part of sort of that leading uh, clique or that leading cabal, uh, he became uh, the commissar for foreign affairs, uh, which is why the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was such a triumph. Uh-huh. No, it wasn't. Um, and then founded the Red Army, which is where he found a real and I think sort of unexplored gift. Because if you're thinking, gosh, who's going to build the most effective fighting force for 20 years? You would not necessarily have thought of um, uh, the weedy Jew who had never done anything except edit a newspaper. You would have thought literally anyone else in Russia. But nope, he was really good at it. And he um, uh, he put together the Red Army. He gave it that in- ideological core. He built uh, Esprit de Corps and morale. He was capable of balancing the needs of the revolution uh, ideologically with the needs of actually fighting a army in the field. It helped that he was fighting a real combination of incompetence and uh, sadists, but he was fighting them and he was doing better at it than virtually anyone else did. And uh, the army that he built, uh, is, you know, in some senses, it's still around uh, beating up the Ukraine right now, but in a more important sense, it beat up Hitler. So good for it. And he became a huge figure after the Civil War, which is why 
uh, Stalin, in order to rise to power, had to do it always at Trotsky's expense, both uh, in terms of his political support and also in terms of his ideological support. And one of the things that Trotsky opposed Stalin on was Stalin said, well, it's time to sort of uh, put down our tent and do revolution in one country and make Russia just as communist as it possibly can be. And Trotsky said, no, no, we have to keep trying to revolutionize the rest of the world. And Stalin said, yes, but then the rest of the world will come fight us and they may not send incompetence and sadists this time. Uh, and so that was one of their big opening questions. Also, uh, Stalin went along with uh, Lenin's new economic policy and a lot of things like that, the sort of half measure, uh, uh, communism that, uh, that, that Lenin put in later on because real communism was killing everyone in the country accidentally as opposed to on purpose, which is not the way it's supposed to work. And so, uh, they had a sort of, uh, left to center left fight. And, uh, in this particular fight, uh, Trotsky lost it and was sent into exile because, um, uh, he was a bad apple and was harming the real revolutionary movement as defined by Stalin. Right. And so when, uh, communists became disenchanted with, uh, Stalin, as Andre Breton, who you will know from Dreamhounds of Paris, did, uh, Trotsky then becomes sort of the romantic alternative, who's a, a hardliner, but is the hardliner who uh, sticks to the uh, true ethics. He is the uh, he is the baby of communism and not the bathwater. Right. And he is the guy who you can say, well, if Trotsky were in charge, they wouldn't have all these massacres. They wouldn't have all these bad things. They wouldn't have all these famines because Trotsky would have fixed it. And so they don't have to confront the fundamental ideological discontinuities at the heart of communism. They can say, oh, it's just Stalin screwing things up because Trotsky would make it better. Right. And you have to ignore all of the people that Lenin and Trotsky killed. Yes, you well, as indeed they did. So why can't yeah. you? Um, I mean, what are you, some kind of fancy guy? <laughs> so anyway, um, enough people are saying this in enough varying tones of voice and loudly enough, and especially in the international uh, communist movement, that Stalin decides it's about time to stop letting people say, if only Trotsky uh, were, and start saying, if only Trotsky had. And he sent a guy named Ramon Mercader to chop Trotsky in the head with an ice axe. And it turned out that worked. Um, and uh, he found Trotsky's single weakness. Yes, being and hit with an ice axe. Being hit in the head with it an ice axe. It turns out it's a, lot so, of, uh, a weakness of a lot of us. It is. It, it does turn out to be, I think it's genetic. I, th I think it's connected to a syndrome. But anyway... Um, uh, Trotsky is assassinated on Stalin's orders in 1940, and then becomes that even better than the guy we could have elected, he becomes the martyr. And, oh, there are even people today, sensible people, people who are capable of um, making change at a supermarket, who will tell you that they are Trotskyists with a straight face. And um, while the amount of damage you can do as a Trotskyist is pretty limited, um, it's still kind of funny. So that is what uh, the magic of Trotsky is, and he's still that sort of uh, glorious uh, communist baby, as Robin put it, um, only, you know, just so darn cute you can't be mad at him. And uh, again, like I say, he's the actually charismatic one, so he's the guy who gets to be an actor. Right. So among, as we're getting back, we're looping back to the putative topic here. Uh, there was no greater Trotskyite <laughs> than Trotsky himself. And so how do you Absolutely. convince him to uh, give up revolution in favor of movie stardom? Well, in, if you started out in, uh, 1917, and because in 1917, and as well as throughout the silent era, there are what are being called social problem films. And, uh, in, in, of which my official wife was one. 
And the social problem films were films in which you would show up on screen for all to see some uh, failing of the horrible capitalist world, and usually a, a, a beautiful young girl who is being menaced by capitalism, and a hero who, by dint of uh, rousing the masses to action, stops it uh and saves the day and gets the girl and these as uh, and often he will rouse the masses to action and the capitals will stomp him and he will die and the girl will you know uh, weep for him on his grave and that's sort of the realistic uh, social problem film but social problem films were a big deal and if you start him out making those you can get into one of those one for them, one for me type deals that movie stars have been doing, I think probably since the twenties, since, you know, United Artists was a thing. And so you start him out on a couple of really good social problem films, of which there are many. And when he's been in enough of those that he realizes that this is a really good way to communicate with the masses, then that is how you sort of lure him in. And then once he's got you know, the, the movie star paycheck. And once Mrs. Trotsky and the little Trotsky's are all sort of depending on that and he can actually, you know, afford to have a phone in more than one room in his house or, uh, you know, any number of things, or he can afford to give money to his, his fellow socialists, which he didn't do while he was in New York. He was kind of a notorious cheapskate. He would, he would borrow uh, money from them to buy furniture and then not pay it back. Um, and then leave to go to Russia and ha now you have furniture. Well, it's really everyone's furniture. Exactly. That's the, it's the working people's furniture. But once you put him in that position where he is, and again, it's not impossible that, uh, I mean, plenty of, of good leftists have wound up being millionaires through no fault of their own. Um, <laughs> and, uh, occasionally through no effort of their own, but you, you move Trotsky slowly into the notion of, well, I'm doing good with my films to, well, these films are doing good and these films are paying for the other films that are doing good. And he winds up being sort of a, a social problem actor who has to be in Westerns in order to uh, keep the, uh, you know, to, to fund the real movies that are going to talk about the horrible situation under those filthy social Democrats in Russia or whatever. Right. He, he starts out doing a, a social problem Western and then that's very popular. And then he does one mm-hmm. with a little less social problem in it and, and so forth and so on. So you've got uh, Trotsky uh, living in, uh, Beverly Hills. He's, uh, uh, going to probably come smack dab against the, uh, first, uh, anti-communist, uh, wave of, uh, hysteria that swept through uh, Hollywood in the thirties. Uh, if not, he's going to be, uh, as an elderly person who hasn't been killed with an ice axe, uh, facing, uh, <laughs> HUAC in the fifties, uh, the, uh, House Un-American Activities, uh, Committee. And so, uh, what happens to, uh, the rest of the time stream and, and Russian history if you pluck Trotsky out of it? Does he just sort of seamlessly disappear the way that Stalin made him not so seamlessly disappear? Or is there a big change? Well, it, it, the uh, big change, obviously, is uh, depending on if you have a un-Bolshevik view of the role of the individual, as I tend to. Um, if you look at the actual situation on the ground for the Russian, for the Bolshevik Revolution uh, in 1917, they don't have a majority in any given party in certainly not in Moscow. They don't have the army on their side and they're surrounded by not just uh, social Democrats, but by genuine uh, royalists and by the allies who are now champing at the bit to go after communism because fighting Kaiserism has worked so well. And without Trotsky, you can certainly argue it's possible that the revolution doesn't really get off the ground in the first place, but if it does, that it very probably gets crunched by one or another of the factions that are opposing it. And you wind up with 
probably a, uh, a right-wing reaction, because that's the sort of thing that happens in Russia, certainly, and by and large in Europe, after you have a failed communist revolution, you have a unfailed fascist or uh, authoritarian counter-revolution, and then that sort of turns Russia into either an ongoing running sore, or it turns Russia into a social democratic regime after the second or third or fourth of the revolution succeeds. But what it does do is it sidelines Russia such that, um, A, you don't have the fear of expanding communism. So you don't necessarily have the visceral connection between the fascist parties in Germany. Italy is still going to go fascist because Italy's going fascist for entirely other reasons. But Germany, a lot of it is fear of the communist invaders because the uh, Bolshevik Red Army nearly ran o- overran Poland in the 1920s. And the Germans are sitting there saying, we're next to Poland and some bright person took our army away. And without that expanding uh, uh, Bolshevik presence, the German political scene changes up. And I think what you don't get is the industrialists saying, you know, what we need to be run by a runty little illiterate from the streets of Linz. That's who we need to put in charge of Germany. I think the industrialists go with an actual sort of military dictatorship, which is what they thought they were getting with Hindenburg in the first place. So you may still have a World War II, but it will be far less likely to be a national socialist World War II, and it will be fighting not so much a expanding, powerful Red Army as it will be fighting a internally riven Russian army, or possibly it will just be expanding into the Balkans, which is, uh, and the Ukraine, and leaving as much of the other parts of the world undisturbed as possible. And it may be a matter in which the, um, uh, the, the remilitarized German state doesn't even need to expand because it can create, uh, the, um, the expanding industrial economy, which was the real reason that the British and Russians were worried about the Germans in the first place. And with Russia taking itself off the table, it doesn't have to worry about Russia. And without a ideological reason to go after Russia, all there is is just greed for the Ukraine, and you can buy the Ukraine cheaper than you can invade it. And even in 1930, they knew that if they uh, if they weren't being dissuaded by crazy notions of killing every Jew in Eastern Europe and uh, similar Lebensraum-like dreams. So uh, if you have Trotsky uh, being off in, uh, in Hollywood, uh, you don't need him to develop the Red Army because in this timeline, uh, Hitler is still a mediocre painter with delusions of grandeur. Right. He may even be a mediocre street agitator with delusions of grandeur. But again, without that pressure from Bolshevism, no one respectable is going to turn to the National Socialists. Now, they made the regime they set up is probably going to be very unsavory, but it's not going to be, you know, genocidal and warmongering simultaneously because that distracts you from the very important business of uh, taking back the important part of Germany, the Rhineland, from the French. And uh, all this nonsense about the rest of it, you, you can make a deal with Poland over Danzig or you can just take over Danzig, but then you don't actually have to uh, go in and, and slaughter every sixth person in Poland because that's pointless. Poland at that point is a perfectly good author- right wing authoritarian state. Anyway, you can make a deal with them to beat on the checks. Um, and so uh, when you uh, do this, Ken, make sure uh, you bring us back the version of Wizard of Oz in which Leon Trotsky uh, plays the wizard at the end. Yes. And, uh, and well, as we contemplate that, I think it's time to also uh, contemplate the coming of the theme music that marks the end of yet another victorious podcast. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Transreality New Worlds. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us in tasty vegetation by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stand shoulder to shoulder with such titans of donation as Scott Stefanski, Teo Possel, Jeremy French, and Sean Manning. Brace for the exclusive delights of our upcoming Patreon, launching sometime after Robin recovers from the film festival near the end of September. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, where once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>